hear the most annoying sound in the world? Welcome to Rage Against the Mainstream, your full-spectrum source for all things music, insight, and opinion. My name is Bill, and I'm joined today with Connor and Steve. Yo. Yo. Last week, we discussed what our dream festivals would be, who would play them, and we all decided on a super group that would round out our festivals. Uh, there were some pretty interesting choices, to say the least. Yeah, they were. Have I you- still can't believe you tried to put Sammy Hagar and Van Halen on the same stage at the same time. Hey, it would have been an ultimate show. Unreal, dude. It would have been. Sammy Hagar has said that he would do it, I think. Absolutely. I don't think David Lee Roth would be. Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. Well, Sammy and Dave did tour in the early 2000s together, and Sammy had talked about going on stage with Dave, but Dave never said it with him. Mm. Michael Anthony also joined them for that tour, too, and he would play with both Sammy and Dave. So you actually like Sammy Hagar, Van Halen? I feel like. The first two. Yeah, I feel like the first two Sammy Hagar albums are really good. 5150 and OU812. There was very good songs on it. It was a new direction for the band. And I feel like it did them well. It made them super, super fucking famous afterwards. If they already weren't. Yeah, honestly, it might have helped Van Halen, not to get too off topic with this, but it might have helped Van Halen commercially to get a new singer at that point because it provided a major controversy and like uh, drama for people to follow. And- 5150 was their first number one album. If, for any of them, Sammy or Van Halen. The departure of David Lee Roth and the entry of him, uh, Sammy Hagar, then uh, it would have just been the follow-up to 1984, maybe like a sophomore slump type deal. Exactly. But get off the topic, too, of saying, you know, making them super famous, their first number one album and stuff like that. Let me ask you this. If you had to choose 10 Van Halen songs, just 10 to make a playlist of it, would any of them be a Sammy Hagar song? You can only choose 10. I can only choose 10? Only choose 10. To span their whole career. Their whole career. Well, I feel like it would be... I feel like it wouldn't be right to span their whole career without mentioning at least one or two Sammy songs. But I'm saying you have to choose your top 10 songs. Because you have to understand, those are... The, you're saying that was the first album to hit number one in Van yes. Halen's career at that point And in time. Sammy Hagar's career and also. And Sammy Hagar's career. But I'm saying from a standalone point as being a Van Halen... Because you know me. like I'm not a huge Van Halen guy. You recently just got me into it because I always ask for like the rarities and things to listen to and not your typical jump and things yeah, like that. exactly. Um, but like Sammy Hagar, even Sammy Hagar is a standalone artist I've never gotten into. And I thought, again, as you're mentioning, super commercial from that era of Van Halen. Was what, he, you like driving 55 miles an ah, hour? No, <laughs> dude, that's terrible, dude. That's horrible. Sammy's solo stuff was pretty good. I'll give it to him. And like, <laughs> and when he was a singer of Montrose, like Montrose yeah. is really good. Uh, see, I like you say like commercial rock, that's like that quote-unquote butt rock to me. You know what I mean? It's yeah. for like those dads that wear New Balances and Grill and they just got like Sammy Hagar in the well, background. Well, I feel it's like, like I feel like after OU812 they went into that like butt rock territory. Yeah. Like Can't Stop Loving You. Mm-hmm. Like those weren't on the first two Sammy albums. On this day in music history. 1976 on April 29th Bruce Springsteen climbed the wall of Graceland to meet Elvis Presley. And Elvis wasn't home. 
This was after the April 29th show at the uh, Memphis Ellis Auditorium on Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run tour. Springsteen decided to catch a taxi to Graceland. Upon the arrival, he had noticed a light on the house and proceeded to jump the gates and walk to the front door. Security intervened, at which point Springsteen asked if Elvis Presley was home, but Presley was in fact in Lake Tahoe. The guards not having any idea who this visitor was, even after Springsteen tried to explain it to them and state that he had been on the covers of Time and Newsweek, they politely escorted him to the street. Years later, Springsteen would tell the story in concerts and reminisce about what we what he would have had to say to Presley if he had answered the door. <laughs> Three years later, Van Halen released Dance the Night Away as a single from their second album, Van Halen 2. The album released on March 23, 1979, and it peaked at number six on the Billboard 200. And uh, the singles from that album were Dance the Night Away and Beautiful Girls. I mean, I like the song. I'm not a huge fan of that song. I mean, but that's another yeah, one. one of my favorite that's another Van one Halen of those tracks. songs that's just like, okay, that's Van Halen. And I said, yes. again, when you show me, Bill, when you show me that playlist and you put like Romeo Delight on there and like certain other songs that really had that hard rock 80s vibe that I really yeah. like. Because even like Def Leppard's like that. I can't stand Def Leppard for certain songs, but then my buddy showed me the song Let It Go oh, off yeah. of Hysteria. And that song's awesome, dude. Like it's just, it's like heavy rock the whole time. Well, Van Halen 2 is actually a really good album. You've listened to the whole thing. Yeah. Huh? yeah. There's, yeah, like there's definitely better songs yeah, no. than Dance the Night Away and Beautiful Girls. Yeah, there's yeah, a couple better songs. That's what I'm saying. There. Usually what Romeo's Delay is off to. Ain't no, it? that's on Women and Children First. Um, Women in Love. What ha- What's on two that you put on? Women that in Love, um, DOA. DOA. Is Unchained on DOA is Down. Good. Unchained is on Fair Warning. Fair Warning. Okay. For those of you that okay. don't know, I am probably the world's biggest Van Halen fan. Certainly the resident Van Halen expert of this yeah, podcast. He was dying for this opportunity to read these news. Now I could die happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One year later in 1980, Black Sabbath began their first tour at Ronnie James Dio. They toured throughout 1980 with Blue Oyster Cult on the Black and Blue Tour. It's a pretty cool lineup, actually. 1998. Steven Tyler of Aerosmith injured his knee at a concert in Anchorage, Alaska. 14 shows had to be canceled due to this injury. Uh, this was the second of two shows on their Nine Lives tour. The length of the tour was due to the chart-topping success of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Aerosmith might as well have got their own Sammy Hagar because after a point, they just started making complete shit. And I Don't Want to Miss a Thing is in that category. I agree. For you me. know what, but what's crazy like about that, that as a song itself, it's like miserable. How many people actually loved it because That's of the crazy. movie people Armageddon? People out over it. It was the movie Armageddon, though. That's yeah. really what propelled that song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because well, it, it, it was a in box the office smash. Tear-jerking scene in yeah. Armageddon. Because yeah. growing up, in my household, I had a very, I guess you could say, vanilla family when it came to music. Like, I wasn't ever really exposed to music. This really came from, like, my friends and the people I hung out with. But my dad, he would like certain songs, and it would be because of situations like this. Like, oh, did you hear that uh, Aerosmith song? It's from Armageddon. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, dad, this is, like, really cool. And then I actually grow a sense and a taste. I'm like, this is, what was I doing? 1999, Tommy Lee announced that he had quit Motley Crue. To devote time to his new band, Methods of Mayhem, and his family. Methods of Mayhem released a self-titled album in 1999 and toured in support of it. It went on to be certified gold. The album featured appearances by Fred Durst, Crystal Method, You God, Kid Rock, Snoop Dogg, Lil' Kim, George Clinton, and Mix Master Mike. The band disbanded in September 2000. Very short-lived. Was it like a year? Yeah, literally a year. A little bit, of, about a year and a half. 
Yeah, I just, I mean, even the guys all from Motley Crue, I mean, standalone successes, you don't, you didn't see that. I mean, what's uh, 6 a.m.? Yeah, 6 a.m. I don't think I've ever heard, one. like, one full 6 a.m. song. Really? I don't think I have. Life is Beautiful? No. Yeah, um, I don't think I have either. No, the thing is, you probably heard I, them, and you just never realized who it was. That's possible. That could be, like, that band like, again. They, they were top yeah. 40 songs. Like, I actively avoided that band. Though. Yeah? Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, like, I knew they came out, and I was like, yeah. I'm not yeah, I'm just not even a big fan projects. of that sound in general. I mean, even, like, Velvet Revolver, I was really cool with for a period of time because that was also Scott Weiland who was involved in that project, which was really cool. And then he went on and did, uh, who's the guy that's in the band now? With Miles Slash, Kennedy. Slash and Miles Kennedy. Like, that's a different kind of scene. Like, you have that band who was, like, real popular in the 80s doing their own side projects, and here we are. Slash is obviously a way better musician. Yeah, but Velvet Revolver was Guns N' Roses with another singer. Yeah, that was Scott Weiland. Yeah, but that's what I mean, though. Yeah, it wasn't but really that's what I'm saying. But it was a side project. It technically was because it was again, it was the same members. It's like almost when you see, um, you know, Rage Against the Machine doing um, Profits of Rage. It's technically uh, a side yeah. project. Audio Slave. I mean, you have pretty much all the members from Rage. It's just technically a side project. Even with Anthrax when they did Stormtroopers of Death, there was oh, everybody yeah. like outside of Joey Belladonna, and that was also a side project. But yeah, I mean, obviously, Six AM being a solo project, you're affiliating it with this guy's from Motley Crue, so I'm going to check this out. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think it didn't even start there because I'm not even a huge fan of Motley Crue to want to check that out. Just the same thing with this Tommy Lee project. I don't even I, think I've ever. I think Tommy Lee fell off the rockers a little bit. Yeah, I mean we've all seen from the dirt. Yeah. All right. Nine years later, 2008, Madonna released Hard Candy in the U.S. Yeah, I mean this album was like kind of big when it first came out, but I feel like it was a bit of a disappointment. After the album before that, which was kind of like her uh, comeback. Well, this was on a dance floor. Well, this was the last record that Warner Brothers put out. So this was basically like what they call the lame duck record. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, she yeah. did that big uh, contract with Live Nation mm-hmm. after, which was like the biggest recording contract ever or something. Music news. Grateful Dead are the subject of a forthcoming graphic novel that chronicles their early years... Uh, entitled Grateful Dead Origins. It's written by Chris Miskiewicz and illustrated by Noah Van Skyver. is due out in early 2020 via Z2 Comics. Shellac have announced a new double LP featuring two previously unreleased BBC Radio Peel sessions called The End of Radio, due out June 14th via Touch and Go Records. Uh, they were recorded at the historic and soon-to-be-shut-down BBC Made of Vale Studios in 1994 and 2004 sessions. Shellac's great. Their last album was in 2012. Dude, incredible. Uh, excellent Italian Greyhound. Before that, in 2007, they were both good. All they, they wait a while to put out an album, but when they put out an album, you know, it's going to be good, top-tier, thought-out shellac. Alright, Hollywood Vampires, the super group rock outfit comprised of Alice Cooper, Johnny Depp, and Joe Perry have announced their new album, Rise, which will be released on June 21st via Ear Music. The 16-track set features uh, the new single, Who's Laughing Now? We've listened to that a little bit. I, I don't mind it. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's definitely something new. Yeah, you know what's interesting, too? They had that first album in 2015. It's like 14 tracks. Most of it's covers. But I'm looking at this, too. Even on the album itself, they had, um, you know, guest vocalists. Uh, Brian Johnson was actually on the album. Uh, cool. Paul McCartney was actually on the album. Joe Walsh played guitar on the album. Robbie Krieger, Slash. Um, 
Yeah, a lot of these guys, Dave Grohl even played drums on track seven, whichever that is, but one jump into the fire. Yeah, is that that cover? Yep. That's funny. Um but it's interesting that all these musicians, you know, comprise for this because this is a cool opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of their covers sound really good. I mean, two the, the, rock icons and yeah, a movie star. And a movie star, and he's actually yeah, because Connor, you know, his other. Side oh wow, project. Paul McCartney played um, piano, bass, and then sang on "Come and Get It," which was a Badfinger song that Paul McCartney wrote and gave to Badfinger because they were on Apple Records in 1969. <laughs> oh wow. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty some. cool. Like 50 years later, yeah. he's like playing on it again. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Well, I don't even know if he played on the original version. And honestly, it's surprising how good of a guitar player Johnny Depp is. Yeah, it is. I yeah. never would have marked him as such. Mm-mm. I mean, actually, I probably would have just for like the scene he involves himself in and like his character. Yeah, that's yeah, true. But I wouldn't the think. Motherfuckers playing guitar with scissors for hands. True, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Breaks on a pirate like ship. Mad. Yeah. Yeah, while he's tripping in the uh, Vegas desert. Didn't he actually die on Elm Street? Yes, he did. He got sucked into the bed. bed, Yes, he did. One of the most iconic deaths in movie history. Most people didn't even know who the fuck that was. That was his first starring role. It was his first first, Yeah. It's pretty badass. It was his first role, period. It's like the most iconic death from that entire franchise. Oh, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Brian Johnson will return with ACDC again, according to reports. The vocalist was forced to stop touring with ACDC in 2016 under the threat of permanent deafness with the Aussie Giants famously bringing in Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose to complete their Rocker Bus world tour. Has anyone heard any of the live video or the live sounds of uh, Axl Rose singing with ACDC? Yeah. He actually I thought he did I thought he did well. My buddy is a security guy for Live Nation in Philly and he worked one of the concerts in Philly or Camden at, where Guns N' Roses was or <laughs> ACDC was playing with Axl Rose, and he said it was actually really good. I, by what I've heard, I think Axl Rose does a better ACDC than he does at Guns N' Roses. I'll agree with that. Honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm really not. I'd have a hard time agreeing with that before I heard it. Yeah, honestly, I, but I'm not a huge. Yeah, he 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 does extremely well. Yeah, I'm not a huge Brian Johnson. Uh, well, I mean, Axl is no with. Brian Johnson or Bon Scott. Yeah. Well, Brian Johnson's no Bon Scott to begin with. All right, we're not going to get on the topic of... Yeah, we don't want to debate that because I'll go all day with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's cool too because that's going to sell. You oh, know 100%. I mean? That's definitely going to sell. Especially considering the fact the last tour they had didn't feature him. Yeah, that's very true. Well, I mean, and that's another thing though because then you bring out this singer being Axl Rose. I'm sure a lot of people bought tickets even just for the opportunity being both a Guns N' Roses fan as well as an ACDC band, oh, like yeah. fan, like you get to actually see that you know lineup in that sense, which is really interesting. Um, I, again, I I wouldn't I wouldn't pay money to go see that. I think um, I think the best one that I've heard was uh, he did he played a whole lot of Rosie with them, and it was like insane. Yeah. Also, too, Malcolm Young's dad. You know that, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So that's his another. son. Or his nephew, him and Angus's nephew or something, is mm-hmm. playing guitar in his place now. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. cool. His name's Stevie. Stevie Young. <laughs> An eclectic Woodstock 50 is on the way. Boom. It'll be hip-hop and rock and some pop and some of the legacy bands from the original festival. 
is how festival organized Michael Lang previously promised it to Rolling Stone. It's supposed to be multi-generational as Woodstock 94 one, Woodstock 94 was. A nice mix of young and old, and that's kind of what they're going for here, said Michael Lang. Woodstock 50 opens at Watkins Glen, 150 miles west of the original festival site. Oh, wow. Well, at least it's still in New York. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why. I guess I've been to the original site. I saw Santana there, and I'm guessing they want it to be a lot bigger because you might just not be able to do a big concert at that spot. Well, I do know that the original Woodstock had uh, 400,000 attendees, and like that was like pretty crazy for the area that it was. That was way too crazy for the area. If, if you ever go there, it's one lane ro- it's one and two lane roads on oh, mountains really? like yeah it's it's not it's and, it's, and it's still the same way and i it's think not, i think they only uh, like um anticipated like a couple hundred people showing up to this thing originally i think they thought like a lot but not anywhere near 400,000 400, yeah people just kept coming and coming and coming well that's why for Woodstock 94 and 99 they moved on to different locations i think well yeah um cuz the roads up there are they're on mountains you can't make six lane eight lane roads no. um well i can't say that i've ever seen 400,000 people in one place before you yeah i can't even imagine what that looks it's like it's literally like in a mountain valley like you can't get 400,000 people there easily. <laughs> yeah. Safely. In a short period of time. Like, it's just not possible. No. People were abandoning their cars. Um, all types of crazy stuff. I mean, even so, too, like, you think of the idea, you know, Woodstock 50. It's it's funny, too, when they say, like, the likes of, like, old and young. You know what I mean? Because, like, if you look at the different sounds of, like, some of these artists that are playing, like, Jay-Z can be considered old. Oh, yeah. You know, the sound of music. Yeah. You know, even the zombies playing is considered old. I mean, that's 90s compared to some of the kids that will probably be attending this. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, then you get certain artists out there. Dead you know, like company. Halsey's a little newer. Run the Jewels is, like, actually pretty good. And they're a little on the newer oh, side. Yeah. I do. I, yeah, I fuck with Run the Jewels. Um, I mean, you got all these different artists that are going Dead up there. Company. Yeah, and then you got Robert Plant, John Fogarty, like Fogarty, Fogarty, Fogarty. Bunny Credence won't release their uh, material, their live set from... Uh, the original Woodstock because John Fogarty feels like it was a subpar performance from them. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. They're like the only big band that played the first Woodstock that hasn't released their uh, their live set on that night. Me and Connor had talked about this one time. For those of you who don't know, we were, all three of us were in a punk band together. Our best night probably couldn't amount to their worst night. Of course not. For who? For Creedence, yes. oh, not even possible. Yeah, but that's also too the idea of being a musician when you really like love a project coming from you yeah. personally. I mean, millions of people could like it, but if you don't personally, you don't give a fuck. Trash. Like, yep, sorry. That's yep. why it's ten years later on from Deep Throat, and we're talking about music, and it's sixty years on from the beginning of Creedence Clearwater Revival, and John Fogerty's still playing music and still collecting, <laughs> and, probably, and definitely still collecting royalties and shit. That's awesome. Yeah, they don't give a fuck at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, going back with like the Woodstock '50 thing, it is really cool. I mean, I think that's a great opportunity because music in its sense, like nowadays, is like totally losing its touch for what it used to be back then. Because you figure in 1969, 
I mean, you have essentially 400,000 people showing up to this festival. And essentially what it did was it created really that vision of a festival. And it's yeah. amazing, too, because back yeah. then, those tickets were $18, you know, in advance. Like, that's like think about paying $18 to see Steve. Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix alone. You know what I mean? Let alone some of the other Jimmy bands Hendrix there. Alone. Even, even yeah, alone. even yeah. Jimi yeah. Hendrix is eighteen dollars. Like you know what I mean? It's just a crazy, crazy different time. And you know now you're going on fifty years later, and some of the artists that are playing, I think they picked a decent lineup for the year that it's in because a lot of these artists are actually like artists. I mean, there's so much music coming out today that is like I couldn't even imagine. And if they put them up on that stage just because they were popular, that would be really upsetting. Yes, you know they're putting a lot of artists up there who actually do like. Like, they actually take care of their craft. Like, they're actually treating as an art. Like, even Halsey, right? Like, I enjoy Halsey's music. I think she's a really good singer. You know, Jay-Z has always put out really good stuff, especially yeah. in the early 90s and, like, you know, even early 2000s. Yeah, but then they do some shit like put the killers on. Yeah, but they like the killers. Yeah, their I do like the killers, too, good. man. Yeah, but I don't think they're, one, relevant enough to be a headliner right now. Yeah. No. That's true. You know they probably I mean? got him for a good deal. I mean, Cage the Elephant was the a Rack cool one. Is cool. Yeah, Cage the Elephant's coming out with new music too. Um, I mean, if anything, Robert Plant, I think, would be able to headline over the Killers. You think it's funny that they did put Greta Van Fleet on the same bill? Yeah. Yeah. Oh shit! Yo, I bet he comes out with them. Who? Fucking Robert Plant, dude. He's Van on Fleet. um day one though. Do you think he's gonna hang oh, around true. and come out with them on day two? He'll probably make them come out with him if that's the case. Yeah, oh, absolutely. He'll probably be like, yeah, I need you guys. I need, you, I need a backing band. Yeah. Well, my voice, my voice is, getting, my throat's getting sore. I did I read though. I did read though. That'd that be a they, lot of YouTube money. Yeah. If they did oh God. Yeah. Led Zeppelin cover. Holy shit. <laughs> I did read though that, that um, Greta Van Fleet hates the fact that they get compared. Co- yeah, they get yeah. compared to Led Zeppelin. But what do well, they expect? Should have tried to not sound what a lot like Led Zeppelin. Exactly. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I would be like, oh my God, thanks. Dude, the first that time means a I, lot. Thank the you. first time I heard one of their songs in a commercial, I was like, "When the fuck did Led Zeppelin come out with new that music?" That was the first thing I thought of. Yeah, I, was I was like, "When? What album did this dude. come off yeah. of?" Like, I had no I've never clue heard what was this. going on, dude. And Greta Van Fleet. I'm like, "What?" And of course, I checked it out as a result. But mm-hmm. again, how how are you not going to tell me not to compare that? Like, you don't want to be compared to Led Zeppelin. I what believe they played that? Coachella last year too. Really? Yes. Okay. Be, uh, there's a lot of. Uh, R&B and hip-hop, too, like Leon Bridges, um, Chance the Rapper, Run the Jewels, we mentioned. Um, that's cool. Jude and the Lion, have you guys ever heard of them? Yeah. I I saw them I saw them before they got popular, dude, and they are an extremely good band. I think it's interesting, too, um, Santana's on this list. Yes. Because you figure 69, Santana playing, that was like his, like nobody really knew him. He wasn't yeah, nearly. This, this broke him. Yeah, yeah. that's that, mm-hmm. his career-making moment. Exactly. Little and known. He did fact. it on acid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's awesome. Little known fact: Neil Sean of Journey, the guitar yeah. player, he played with Santana at Woodstock. What '69? Yes, he was the sir. second guitarist alongside yes. him. Yes, he was. That's awesome. Gary Clark Jr. and Tom Morello just did a track too. Gary Clark Jr. is playing this. Uh, that's cool. I wonder if, uh, since it's like. Gary Clark's newest single. I wonder if uh, Tom Morello will make a little appearance. So before we like wrap around with talking about this, I mean, we can really break it down in a sense, like from '69 to '94 to '99, and then leading on to now, you know, the 50th anniversary approaching. Um, okay. I mean, if you think of the artists 
and like the time. Like that's why I really wanted to get to the idea, like the artists and for their time. Because a lot of people, I remember, I saw an article where they were asking people that attended the original Woodstock in '69, right? And they were asking about some of these artists, and they didn't know who majority of who they were. And a lot of people will give Woodstock 50 shit because of like what everyone has the idea of Woodstock being, which is 1969. Acid, Jimi Hendrix, that like cliche idea. But with the times changing, music's obviously changing as well. You know, and like we were just talking, they're not putting artists up there just because they're popular, but they're putting good musicians up there to perform yeah. a great show. So you figure like 69, you know, obviously at that point in time, I mean, the Battle of Hamburger Hill was in 1969 in Vietnam. I mean, that, I mean, so much is going on in 1969. This festival was obviously created as like a peace movement in a sense, yes. but then it really opened the doors for what festivals became yeah. later down the line. I mean, so many people that go to like Red Rock and things like that really stem from the idea of like what Woodstock created. Yeah, it was, it's basically like the, it's like we talk about all the time with evolution. Yeah. It's the evolution of what a festival is and what it could be. Yeah. And this opened up the doors for, you know, Lollapalooza mm-hmm. or Coachella. Was it Ozfest Pink Pop? even. Was it Pink Pop too? Maybe. Was that another one? I think so. Like, yeah. If you guys were going to pick a day to go to from Woodstock 50, which one would you pick? Woodstock 50? Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's a shame too because Black Keys dropped out day two. That would have been cool to see. Um, I'm a big fan. What, of Black Keys? I was yeah. a big fan of their earlier shit. Um, day three is actually pretty good. I don't fuck with Imagine Dragons, um, but I do like Cage the Elephant. Zombies are on there. Jay-Z. I think I got to take day one. I would take day one, too. I mean, you got Killers. You got Santana. You got Plant. You got... And then Pog- day three. Yeah, Run the Jewels. Next. I think I'd pick day three. Really? Yeah. Day three, you got yeah, Jay-Z, Courtney Barnett, Halsey, Cage the Elephant. Uh, yeah, just Jay Z, Halsey, and Cage Elephant, and zombies. Tuna, fucking, you got Can Heat and Hot Tuna. Yeah, who's singing for the zombies right now? Rod Argent, the original singer. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I would see the zombies. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably do day one. I'd probably go to see day one. But that's the thing, though. If I'm gonna go to Woodstock in general, I'm going all three days. Yeah, just just yeah, out exactly. of principle. Gotta get your money's worth. True. But I, but but break this down. Like as I mentioned, '69. You know, Vietnam War is going on. I mean, day one you have acts like Joan. You know, Baez, you got Sweetwater, Day 2. You got, like, Santana, Grateful Dead. I mean, that's Grateful Dead, too. That's not Dead mm-hmm. Company. Um, you had Credence on there, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, Jefferson Airplane. Then you hit Day 3, and you got acts like Crosby, Steele's Nash, and Young. Um, you have Country Joe and the Fish. You got Johnny Winter. And then you got Day 4. Day 4 is funny because, dude, it's just three acts, and it was Paul Butterfield, Blues Band, uh, Shanana, and then Jimi Hendrix comes out. It just ends the night. Closes the whole thing. Literally, probably just, yeah, just, and it's funny because... Is that the iconic concert where he lit the guitar on fire at the end, or no? No, that's, he didn't do that at Woodstock. Okay. No. But, so, uh, Jim, yeah, Jimi Hendrix played at like 2 in the morning or something, right? Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. And it's just awesome. I mean, that entire set was just, I mean, for him alone, was definitely worth 18 fucking dollars. Imagine having to go to work the next day. I like wouldn't after go to that. work, dude. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I would purposely get fired if I had an opportunity to see that today. So the original Woodstock only made like between like four or five million dollars. It's insane, dude. It's <laughs> yeah, absolutely insane. You have to think insane. about their money, though. Like yeah. four to five million. It's like million. $20 million today. It's still way It's really too not cheap. even that much. Yeah, it's still, yeah. It was still way too cheap for but what that, it was. But then <laughs> that's where you go back because the idea for that festival, like you say, they weren't expecting 400,000 people to turn no. out. You know, and also going into that, it was really the idea these musicians are going out there as a simple peace protest and obviously having music bring people together. 
you know, and then you think about the way Woodstock grew then from there. I mean, I don't think any of these people, even with Santana going up there for Woodstock 50, I don't think at any point he thought that this was going to become an anniversary event and how iconic no. Woodstock is. I mean, like, you hear older people when they talk to you about, like, they were cool back in the day. One of the things they could eat, I was at Woodstock 69. You're going to be to think, like, dude, you're probably cool as fuck. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Um, but, my, yeah, I mean, you go to, you know, Woodstock 94. My mom was at Woodstock when she was seven years old. Wow. See, yeah. And you're, yeah <laughs> that's you know what cool. I mean? Like, that's just, that's a cool fucking story to hold. You know? She was in the back of a bread van the entire time, is what I'm told. As a seven-year-old child. With her twin sister. Jesus Christ. She didn't go hungry. No. No? Definitely yeah. not. So then you got, yeah, after, I mean, after All right, kids, you got plenty of bread. Uh, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny when you see some of the uh, pictures from that time where there's, like, people sitting on the side of the street with, like, cardboard, you know, signs. It just says free acid. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like that was just such a different time in life. Now you go to festivals and things like that, and people are like taking Molly and all crazy shit. And I mean, the atmosphere Trading gets more hostile. Yeah, it gets more hostile. I mean, you figure four hundred thousand people, nineteen sixty nine. I mean, you go all the way to ninety nine. Some of the stories that came out as a result of what happened in ninety nine with the oh, violence yeah. and the rapes and things like that. I mean, that just shows you the total energy of like some of the people that we live with today. I mean, where. It, totally changed i mean in 69 again they went there for the music and for the music alone you know what i mean it was the idea of like a peaceful protest to have a good time and that's it and they separated any type of negativity things like that well that's the difference between the first woodstock and then the other two yeah is um it's almost like the like the quality of people changed yep like back then people had respect for stuff and respect for other people and as you get into the 90s and Gen X and on Gen Y, whatever, mm-hmm. once you get up to that, you know, you start seeing like less and less of respect for other people and other stuff. And then next thing you know, you got rapes and yep. fires and all kinds of stuff. I mean, not to say that stuff wasn't happening back then. Uh, it just I mean, wasn't it, reported. Yeah, that was, wasn't reported. But also, too, um, even reporting concepts, if it was just as much reported of every incident that happened back then, I guarantee you it would be on a lesser scale than what we're experiencing today. Oh, yeah. But that's also, too, like that angry angst, um, you know, just people got, they just changed with the idea of how much they could and couldn't do. And, you know, again, like going back to 1969, I mean, you have to understand we're in one of the most controversial wars in American history at this point in time. But also to come out of that. I mean, for instance, if you ask somebody, like, what you know about 1969, more people than not will say, oh, you know what I mean? Uh, Woodstock 99, instead of the fact that Ho Chi Minh died in 1969. Yeah. You know what I mean? One of the peaceful advocacies, you know, who he tried to spur about, like, trying to unite Vietnam and all those things. But, yeah, he dies in September of 1969. I mean, shortly after this, you know, concert even happened. I guarantee you not a lot of people know that. No, yeah. But yeah, I mean, going on, Connor. I mean, like with like the idea of like Woodstock '94. What? Um, yeah, I'm taking Woodstock '94 here. Start off with the first day. The uh, highlights were probably Blues Traveler, Live, James, Cheryl Crow, Collective Soul, Candlebox, Violent Femmes, Aphex Twin, and uh, Delight. Hmm. Yeah, Groove is in the heart. On uh, day one of '94, that was a good. Um, <laughs> Joe Cocker, Blind Melon, Cypress Hill. All right, this is way better than the first day. Yeah, 
uh, Rollins Band, Melissa Etheridge, Crosby, Stills, Nash featuring John Sebastian, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, Aerosmith, Cranberries, The Band featuring Hot Tuna, Bruce Hornsby, Roger McGuinn from The Birds, uh, Rob Wasserman, Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead. Primus featuring Jerry Cantrell. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Salt and Pepper. Yeah, yeah day awesome. two was fire. <laughs> Wait, not ninety four. Rollins Band had already released Liar, right? Yeah, I think that was yeah. that year or the year before. Yeah, so they're riding on the success of that. Yeah, so. they were like popular. They were on MTV. Yeah, yeah. cause I'm a liar. <laughs> Uh, Shannon Hoop from Blind Melon played in his girlfriend's dress while tripping on LSD, carrying on the uh, Santana tradition. <laughs> um, Shannon Hoon was a crazy guy. He didn't, wasn't he the guy that peed on the front row or whatever? Yeah, at one point. So. Yeah. yeah, okay. Aerosmith's Joey Kramer, Joe Perry, and Steven Tyler were all at the original Woodstock Festival in 1969. Where they were from like. Massachusetts, I think, Aerosmith. Yes. Not, not, yeah, Bad Boys of Boston. Yeah. Um, Aerosmith performed around 3 to 4 a.m. Wow. Right, right That's after crazy, an extensive dude. firework display from Metallica. Tyler said in the liner notes for the album during their set, it rained like a cow pissing on a flat rock. I don't know what that means. It sounds but funny. You got a name, as bi- <laughs> or you got a mouth as big as Steven Tyler's is, then you're probably going to fucking let some weird shit out of it occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, day three started it off with the legacy act country Joe McDonald. Had Arrested Development, Allman Brothers, Allman Brothers yeah. Traffic, Spin Doctors, Bob okay, Porno for Pyros, Jane's Addiction for those of you who don't know. Basically, um, without Dave Navarro. Um, Bob Dylan, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Peter Gabriel. <laughs> also, we had Green Day. This Woodstock 94 pretty much propelled Green Day into the spotlight. Well, Dookie had just come out, right? Dookie was com- – yeah, it was out. Um, I think it had been out for like four or five months and hadn't really done much. The uh, first single was Longview, and I don't think it really did anything – until uh, Woodstock, because they had the mud fight. Oh, yeah. Yep. The bassist got, like, spear-tackled by uh, a security guard who thought he had just jumped on stage. He lost a tooth. <laughs> had to get emergency, like, mouth surgery That's after. Funny. That's um, probably the most punk thing that ever happened to Green Day. Yeah. Yeah. Woodstock 99. Uh, day one taking place on Thursday, July 22nd, obviously in 1999. Uh, probably the notable acts from day one would be Vertical Horizon and George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. Day two was the 23rd of July. Um, on the West stage, you had uh, Lit, Buck Cherry, The Roots, Insane Clown Posse, and George Clinton once again. On the East stage, you also had uh, James Brown. Wow. G Love and Special Sauce, Jamiroquai, Live, Cheryl Crow, DMX, The Offspring, Corn, and Bush. That's such a cool lineup, dude. Cheryl Crow is now like a legacy artist of uh, Woodstock. She did 94, 99. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. just so cool, though. I mean, just be able to see. I mean, like, I'm not a huge Cheryl Crow, but the Her. fact that you see James Brown on the same stage as DMX, Bush, and Corn. Tuesday Night Music Club is a good album. 
with Strong Enough and uh, All I Want to Do. Yeah, that's another yeah. artist that my dad would have playing on like generic stations. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? That would just like be 101. You know yeah. what I mean? He, it would be on, and he would just be listening to it. And so, of course, me as a small child would be like, well, this is cool. She has some good songs. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Took, she There's took nostalgia a, in there. Yeah, she took a slant to the more pop-driven later on. But yeah. It's okay. Oh, yeah. All right, then uh, we got Saturday, day three. Um, notable acts are Everclear, Ice Cube, Arabian Prince, and the reunion of NWA. Yeah, that's cool. And the Chemical Brothers. That was on the west stage. On the east stage, you had Kid Rock, Wyclef Jean, and the Refugee All-Stars, Counting Crows, Dave Matthews Band, Alanis Morissette, Limp Biscuit, and Rage Against the Machine, and Metallica. Yeah, it's a really cool set. Fatboy Slim headlined the Emerging Artist stage. Well, yeah, Woodstock 99 might have been like the peak of them like having money to like get a shit ton of crazy big yeah. acts. Oh, yeah, stuff. well, that's because that's only day three. We got day four here. Your West Age, you have Seven Dust, Collective Soul, Godsmack, and Megadeth. On your East Age, you have Willie Nelson, Brian Setzer Orchestra, Everlast, Elvis Costello, Jewel, Creed, featuring Robbie Krieger. Yeah, what were you thinking, Robbie Krieger? Yeah, I know. That's and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, another legacy artist. Yeah, and uh, Collective Souls also a legacy artist, too. <laughs> and the emerging artist stage, which I find to be kind of funny, is Muse. Yeah. 99 was known for the uh, oppressive heat, the expensive food and drink, and the violence, right? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's expand on that. Um, during Limp Biscuit's set on Saturday night, um, let's see. It gets hot in New York in the summer. Oh, yeah. All right, it reached over 100 degrees. Hot, bro. And um, a little bit about the place that it was at. It was at an air uh, at an airstrip, right? And the east and west stages were 2.3 miles away on tarmac. Ooh. On asphalt. Yes, yeah, that's... That's insane. Bad idea, yeah. Horrible idea. Like 100 degree temperatures, how hot that... that I mean, well, what's even... must be ridiculous. Dude. What's even stranger about it was... Um, the airstrip that it was located on yeah. was a Superfund site. Are you guys aware with what Superfund sites are? Negative. They are government-owned plots of land that has had hazardous materials in the ground. That's what Superfund is. That's where Woodstock 99 was? Woodstock 99 was basically on a nuclear like airplane, air, airport, airstrip. Yeah, that's, that's crazy, dude. I mean, I'm not going to say that nuclear waste was a... Uh, factor in some of the allegations or negative no we're not you know things but just to throw it out there that that's a factor on what made that festival you know what it was it is crazy too like you were saying too about the fred durst situation um it was after his performance i mean they started tearing up the walls um it was during that performance of the song break stuff i mean coincidentally um there were several sexual assaults they were also reported um in the aftermath of the concert uh, Fred Durst actually stated during the concert, people are getting hurt, don't let anybody get hurt, but I don't think you should mellow out. But he also said, and then he, yeah, that's and then what Alanis Morissette had you motherfuckers do. Yeah, wild, dude. And then he said, if someone falls, pick them up. Durst said during the performance of the band's hit song, Nookie, we already let all the negative energy out. It's time to reach down and bring that positive energy to this motherfucker. 
It's time to let yourself go right now, because there are no motherfucking rules out there. In contrast, partway through break stuff, Durst encouraged the crowd to be angry. Listen, man, I'm going to tell you right now, I did not like that scene that was produced from, like, the Janko jeans and, like, the chain wallets and that whole scene I grew up with in the 90s based on, like, bands like, you know, Limp Biscuit and things like that. I mean, you come in and you disrespect Alanis Morissette in that sense to say, like, oh, she let you mellow out. And it was a subtle, like, it wasn't a complete direction at her because his type of music is obviously in your face way different yeah you know but then you're leading into other bands to come out there to perform on the same likes as you but don't go in there and just disrespect an artist who has a totally different sound of music because i'm gonna yeah. tell you right now dude i can literally go blast you know epidemic of hate by dying fetus and then i can go on and put on jagged little pill by alanis morissette in a different in the, like within 20 minutes of each other like it doesn't i have that array of music to yep. be able to listen to so for him to disrespect them in that woodstock setting and then go out before you know nookie comes on want to calm the crowd down don't do anything crazy and then break stuff comes on you're gonna like amp the crowd up to do some shit like that yep. at this point it's like later in the evening people are fucking drunk you know, a mess, yeah. you know, the, the heat, everything surrounding that environment, that yep. was not the right thing to do at that point in time. Well, that also goes back to the respect thing that we were talking about Exactly. Earlier. In yeah. 1999, too, Alanis set was literally God. Huge. Yes, in the film, huge. Dogma. Yes, she was. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> she literally was God. Buddy, buddy Christ. Yeah, buddy Christ. <laughs> I mean, we're making it seem like Woodstock 99 was this horrible thing. I mean, it really yeah, wasn't. It, it, it gets a bad rap for that sense. You know what I mean? But in but. my opinion, I mean, obviously besides Woodstock 99, I mean, 69, mm-hmm. 99 would probably be the one that I would spend money to go to. Well, yeah, that set list is ridiculous. I, dude, oh just, God, yeah. just to see like Rage, Metallica, Cheryl and even Crow. DMX, dude. Yeah. Like DMX in 99? Oh, my God. Dude. See Megadeth in 99 headlining? Yeah, Megadeth in 99. I mean, there was just such a willing... Yeah, Yeah. dude. Literally any of them. Costello, Everlast. I mean, any of those days. Any of the four days you... Megadeth. Maybe not day one, but day two, three, and four. If you were to go to any of those days, you were guaranteed an awesome show. Last week, our group suggestion was to check out the biopic Control. Steve, you want to give us a little background of what that movie is? Yeah, uh, so Connor was the one who actually introduced this movie. It's about Ian Curtis, uh, singer, former lead singer, uh, Joy Division. Uh, pretty much it's a biopic. Uh, Sam Riley plays Ian Curtis in the film. It kind of shows like how Joy Division first came to be, how they got you know Ian in the band, and then obviously his struggles with epilepsy, how that eventually crippled his career to the point leading up to his suicide. Um, Joy Division, uh, for those of you who don't know, gained their name, obviously. They were first known as Warsaw. It was too controversial. Then they used the term Joy Division because it was more subtle in its context because it was actually referring to the camps in, you know, like concentration camps where they would have these, like, you know, prisoners and have sex even with Even more extreme. Yeah, it was even more extreme, but the subtle context of it. And, and, and again, they came out in that post-punk scene. I mean, they're in there in the regards of, like, the Smiths, Cure, um, but Joy Division had their really own sound to it. It's a shame because he did commit suicide, and you see it in the film. Um, obviously, when it was just announced that they were about to tour in the United States. Um, but yeah, Bill, you were able to watch it, so I do want to hear. Yeah, I really want to yeah. hear your take on it. Well, 
coming from a place of not knowing Joy Division or have listened to Joy Division before. You never listened to any Joy Division. I before? never listened to Joy Division. Did Connor jam him down your throat <laughs> like he used to with me and Nirvana to the point where I actually love Nirvana now? I mean, Connor did give me some good insight. Joy Division, I really I liked them to an extent, and then Connor showed me that film, and I actually was like, oh shit. Coming from a place of not really knowing Joy Division or listening to their music at yeah. all, watching the movie from an outsider's perspective, I could, I could definitely see myself going to dive into Joy Division a little bit. I thought the movie was extremely well written. I mean, it, it's, a bi- it's a biopic, so I yeah. mean, it's based off a true story, so it's not written, technically. Yeah. But I think the story was really good. I thought the acting was incredible. Yeah, how'd you think about Sam Riley playing Ian Curtis? I thought that was good. It was really good, right? I thought that was extremely yeah, good. Yeah, I liked it. I think it's the greatest biopic of all time. It's probably my one yeah, of my favorites, too. Because if the Doors yeah. one wasn't so erratic... Yeah, you know that Oliver Stone. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If that mm-hmm. wasn't so erratic, yeah, it's chaotic. Yeah, and they really like made it way more dramatic than it was on how yeah. Jim Morrison was as a person. It's less of a like sober take on it. Yeah, kinda. yeah, it's like riled up yeah. storyteller telling the story. I just thought I thought it was an extremely good movie. I mean, even though it was totally in black and white, which I don't have a problem with. Yeah. I, just, I did think it was extremely good. Yeah, because well, that's the thing. I mean, in most black and white films, they try to go too artsy. Yeah. And then a lot of people really are like, oh, you have to check this film out. It's so incredible. But it's really because it's just black and white and, like, there's no talking. And I get it. Like, some movies mm-hmm. that are, I have seen some silent films that are excellent, some just black and white films that are there for the aesthetics that are really good. Yeah. But this movie, in its sense, it wasn't even like you could enjoy it just because it was like a weird art. It was just a good film. Yeah, it was a very good film. black and white is one of those things because a lot of people, when it's in subtitles, won't watch it. It's in black and white, won't watch it. This movie, I didn't even like notice half the time. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Well, like Rolling Stone, if you're dead and they put your picture in the magazine, it's going to be in black and white. If you're alive, you cannot... I think they've only done it for like one or two people, like Bob Dylan or something. That's cool. Like, if if you're not dead, you don't get your picture black and white in Rolling Stone. That's really cool. In the artistic sense of photography, that's like in the post-color world of photography. That's like a kind of like somber thing to do to reflect death or whatever. All right, well, let's go into our rating system again. Out of a score from one to ten, or one to a hundred, uh, you know, in increments of ten. Yeah. Well, ten. Well, ten. Uh, ten out of ten. Yep. Give it a ten, Connor. Yep. I can't give it a full ten. Um, because like for a ten for me, it's got to be like absolutely just. What's what's a better rock documentary? I didn't say that. That I didn't say that I could name a better rock documentary right off the top of my head. And it's at the top of its field. It's in that best. in that genre, yeah. genre wise, yeah. I mean, definitely, it's it's a ten in that sense. But as a movie, like a standalone, like I want to say, I want to base it on people that actually just on any film in general, because you have to watch it as a movie. Yes. You know, a lot of people, as a Joy Division fan, you're going to watch it. But for somebody, for instance, to watch The Dirt, they're going to watch it on Netflix because it's streaming and it's going to be probably interesting. So for the idea of like someone who's going to watch this as just a movie without even knowing who Joy Division is, Me. I'm going to give it – I would give it a solid nine. Absolutely. Because I, I just can't – I can't give it a perfect score just for the sense because, again, they really, really honed in on the relationship aspect of it with Ian. You yes. know what I mean? Which was really cool. I mean, but you got to miss a lot more so of like what was going on in that scene in its entirety. 
Like it was very ice. It was about Ian Curtis, though. I know. I think that's why I just because I, I wanted to see more. I think of like twenty four hour party people. Then I did watch twenty four hour party. And people. it's a lot. That's worse a straight of a movie. mockumentary, though. Yeah, it's a lot worse of a movie. Though it's way worse. Yeah. yeah, but I'm saying you didn't need. I'm not saying you need to expand how much twenty four hour party people did. I don't think you need to expand that far and introduce little bands here and there because even when they introduced Joy Division in that movie, it's like it's super like stupid, dude. Yeah. It's embarrassing for yeah. them. Um, but yeah, no, I think just for a sense, because it's really, again, it is an Ian Curtis biopic. You know, obviously, the movie's called Control. I mean, mm. she's lost control. I mean, the song was yeah. written, you know, written about that epileptic teaser from that woman, which he was experiencing as well at that point in time. But yeah, I mean, I would give the movie a nine, just as so, because it is that good. But for me to give a perfect score to something, it's really got to... I can give it a 90. I'll it's give a it nine. a nine. Yeah. I'll give it a nine out of ten. But well, because I'm looking at it as a movie too, and not from a Joy Division fan or someone yeah. that you know knows the music or knows the story. Exactly. I think from I think the acting was really really good. I like the way that it unfolded. I don't think it was too rushed or too you know strong out. Yeah. I thought there was I, I, just, I just thought it was a good movie. Yeah. And even the parts when it does get like kind of slow, it's you know, such a good storyline to the understanding of like watching him slowly become more and more dissociated with yep. you know the fame and everything he's about to you know stumble upon upon touring in the United States and how big they were about to break out and he just him personally it's just it is true I mean a lot of people I guarantee you feel like that on a regular basis I mean even when you go back and talk about Lane Kurt Ian Scott Weiland with his addiction mm-hmm. issues I mean all those things leading up to his death Chester I mean all these different musicians you think they just got it Nikki Six to me Nikki Ian Six. Curtis is like the biggest like rock tragedy maybe like Jimi Hendrix or... what about Andrew Wood because oh. he could have been Ian Curtis destroys Andrew Wood's Of course, tragedy. but don't don't disregard yeah. that because he missed out on the opportunity to see what happened to Think that Think about scene. how much more ahead of their time Joy Division were. Well, than, absolutely. That's than, where I really uh, give the Mother credit. Love Bone. That's where yeah. I really give the credit to like, Division. Bon and how little material Ian Curtis got to do before he was gone. Like, yeah. if, if Ian Curtis would have gone on throughout the 80s even uh, with the guys that you know enjoy division and went on to do a new order like the yeah. stuff they were doing in the 80s was still ahead of its time it's crazy because so, like, some of their biggest the, all songs, those minds still working together for 10 more years like they yeah. would have produced insane material. i think he died too right before closer came out the second album yeah so mm-hmm. it's funny because right you think about all the songs that he did record that hadn't even been released yet to become popular like transmission wasn't on a feature there was like, new order songs uh you know uh level terrace monument Apart. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Or not, yeah, the the song from Monument, um, Ceremony. Ceremony, yep. Um, yeah, Ceremony, yep. But even like Level Terrace Apart, Transmission, Disorder, a lot of those songs did not make it on their LPs and stuff. I and think then, Closer came out shortly after he died, shortly and Level Terrace Apart was like very shortly before, like maybe a week. It could yeah. have been after. But I'm talking about like even the compilations that were released, like Substance, like the first time people were able to buy them on CD. Peter Hook said he knew it was a good film because he saw it at the Cannes Festival and only two people went to go to the toilet in two hours. One of them was a 70-year-old woman and the other one was uh, Bernard Sumner from New- Joy Division. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's yeah. funny. Um, let me see here. Oh, no. Uh, I think it came out. I think the single also came out after he died. Which one? Level Terrace Apart? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I figured because I knew that that had just been recorded as well as the music video. Yep. Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, and it's cool too, like New Order when they did you know form after his death. You gave it a nine too. Yeah, I gave it a nine. Yeah, so I mean, between the three of us, you know, a nine, a nine, and a ten at twenty eight, I mean, that's like a ninety three percent on average. Okay, so that's probably our highest ranking thus far. Well, for I mean, anything. yeah, between the two so far, yeah, obviously yeah. that they're we were right on par with like. Yeah, had been. we were perfect. Well, yeah, even this like, is right on par because the overall consensus. Metacritic gave uh, gave the movie a seventy eight out of a hundred, mm-hmm. so that's seven point eight. Rotten Tomatoes eighty seven. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, so we gave it. We're, we're a little, little higher, higher, but it's a little biased more so. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. you're getting higher votes as well as Connor from myself. Uh, you obviously gave it the nice because it's cool to see it from your perspective because you're not a huge Joy Division guy. You didn't yeah. really know too much about him, so you just watching it as a film kind of gives that different perspective, which is good. All right, well, that wraps that one up. Um, let's get into our personal suggestions for this week. This week, I'm going to suggest Van Halen's 2012 release, A Different Kind of Truth. It was the album that featured Tattoo as a single, and it also featured songs that, that were That song written. was bad. Well, yeah, I'm not saying Tattoo is like the standout track from the album. I mean, there was a couple good songs like Blood and Fire, and that I later found out was a song that Eddie had written in 1983 entitled Ripley. And you can check the facts with that on YouTube. There's demo tracks of it. But yeah, um, this week, A Different Kind of Truth, Van Halen. All right, Connor. Okay, I'm taking the 1993 second-to-last Ramones album, Acid Eaters. It's a cover album. Uh... I got this album a couple of months ago. It's really grown on me. I didn't realize it was a cover album until I bought it, and I got to the second song, which is Substitute by The Who, and then I took my phone out and Wikipedia the album real quick and got the rundown and all. And uh, it was actually a pretty good little listen. It's it's a quick album. It's only 30 minutes. Um, got The Who, The Stones, uh, The Animals... Birds, the seeds, CCR, uh, Ramones covering "Have You Ever Seen the Rain?" Really can't beat it. Too. That's cool. Um, yeah. Um, if you bought the album in Japan or Brazil, you got "Surf and Safari" by the Beach Boys as well. Oh wow. Um, but yeah, check it out. Acid Eaters, Ramones. Yeah. So my recommendation of uh, yeah the week is going to be the 1984 uh, live show as well as the soundtrack. Stop making sense by the talking heads um yeah the soundtrack if you buy it on album um it is actually a shorter version of the live show itself however you can download the album itself um i do have it on apple music it has all 16 tracks but the i recommend the show in its entirety i recommend just watching it because you get to just see the performance that these guys put on just the energy level i mean the talking heads are just such a dynamic sound and it's just so it's just such good quality music as well as good performance. Like, that's another show I would have paid a lot of money to have been a part of. Oh, yeah. It's just an amazing show. I mean, even once they start building up with David Byrne first coming out doing Psycho Killer and they keep bleeding in. I mean, even the song, song Heaven. More, yeah, uh, just they start the drums. and the yeah. yeah. And by the time they hit, like, Life During Wartime and, like, burning down the house prior to that, I mean, it just gets so exciting. Um, Girlfriend is better. Girlfriend on there. Yeah, yeah. dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. That's when he comes out in the big suit. Yeah. That's when he comes out in the big suit, dude. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's my recommendation of the week, the 1984 uh, live show as well as the soundtrack itself, uh, Stop Making Sense by the Talking Heads. Suggestion of the week. All right, and to uh, keep this uh, tradition going for our group suggestion, 
This week we are going to choose the 2011 documentary about the Foo Fighters called Back and Forth. This documentary follows the Foo Fighters story all the way from the ending of Nirvana and um, Sunny Day Real Estate all the way until the recording and release of 2011's Wasting Light. Which I don't know about you guys, but I actually really enjoyed Wasting Light. I thought it was an extremely good album. Very well could have been their last good album. It's okay. Like, it's good. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's their last good one. But it's almost like... it's like Produced by to Butch Metall- Big. Back to Metallica. It's like almost like they're like Load or Reload or Black... I think he kind of wishes it was his Black album or something like yeah. that. But it's really yeah. Load or Reload. Well, they had, <laughs> Echo, they had Echoes, Silence, Pages, and Grace before it. I, I feel like if those two albums were switched, it would be like... That would be their Black album. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'll have to check this out because I'm the minority this week and not be seeing that actually it's I'm, on netflix yeah i'll have to check it, it out because um yeah i mean food fighters for me i mean what does it really do does it really get into it gets into everything it, yeah it's cool because yeah. it, it's honestly mostly focused on the early years of the food fighters okay. yes because yeah. i do like the the first album by them i mean all the way up to the color it shows shape. you it shows you basically from like kurt kurt's passing oh really on does it really show like how yeah. much of like a picks up uh, right after how, like, Bain OCD uh, Dave was with controlling the band and like the, oh yeah, oh, yeah. William Gold direction interviewed and everything like yeah. the drummer he redid yeah. all because I hear all the rumors about how controlling he was and you know he wind up you told me telling me like recording drums on Color in the Shape. Well, I mean, and, obviously it. Dave had some sort of input on this movie, so it's not going to show that he was total, like a total dick. Yeah, but it's going to show you that he. He, I believe one of the quotes in the movie is when he writes a song, he he knows where the root accents should lie. And he himself even says, that's a fucked up way of saying, uh, when I write a song, I know what the drums should sound like. Just going to throw that one out there. Yeah. Honestly, though, if you're fucking Dave Grohl, it, that's the it. drums got to be how you how you can have the drums because yeah. Dave Grohl's are arguably yeah. one of the greatest drummers to ever come out of the 90s or even one of the greatest drummers ever 90s is not even arguable I feel like yeah, I mean maybe Sean Kenny from Alice in Chains but Matt one Cameron. of not one yeah. of though not, yeah it's argu- anybody it's going to be arguable yeah. they're the yeah. greatest but either way you talk about drummers of the 90s Dave Grohl's always mentioned yeah always. 100% because like even with Foo Fighters today I'm not a huge Foo Fighters fan I think they're one of the most like commercial like rock bands. Like they will put out, for instance, you like I, Tom Petty. I love Tom Petty. He was super you, commercial if, too. To me, that's the thing. It's like if you're okay with like the mm-hmm. commercial the older, level of Tom Petty, then you got to. I'm not okay with the players. commercial level of Tom Petty though. Okay. Same well, way, this is this is where it differs though. Because for instance, like with Tom Petty, I'm sure ticket prices with him would be super expensive, and I wouldn't pay that money. I tried to go. See, I never saw Foo Fighters. I saw them touring. They were coming to the BB and T. I went to go get lawn tickets. I'm not even kidding you, dude. They were almost like $100 a piece for lawn tickets. Yeah, I don't have ridiculous. $200 because I have to take my girl all the time. I'm never going to shows without her. It's an experience in itself. But I'm yeah. not spending $100 just for myself. So almost $200, not including all the fees because I use StubHub, which is bullshit. Yep. Um, to go stand lawn. Yeah, you're going to end up spending like close to $300. Yeah, dude. It's absolutely ridiculous. Then to hear, you yeah. know, majority of their new album exactly. that you don't even know anyway. But then, for instance... Like the reason why I get over that commercial success like thing about it, because again, I wouldn't spend that type of money to go see Tom Petty either. Um, for instance, like going to see um, Foo Fighters, spending that type of money, not going to do it, and that's what upsets me. They're kind of losing, and they're becoming that 
type been of this, band. Been that way for years. I know, probably. and it's yeah, just, it sucks, dude. Because you figure I spent money to go see this Slayer show coming up May 24th. I'm, it's a Monomorph, Cannibal Corpse, Slayer, and Lamb of God. For three tickets, dude, I spent less than $100. Yeah. For three tickets. I paid... Uh, I mean, that's, that's... I paid $60 yeah. for, no, two, for two chairs. Charge far too much for their tickets. Yeah, and that's what that's the only thing I like cuz again, the music itself, I, there's a lot of good work done by the Foo Fighters. Yeah. But again, for this day and age, I, I remember I had an opportunity to go see him with Social Distortion and that, that those ticket prices were so high. I wanted to see Mike Ness and Social Distortion more than I wanted to see the Foo Fighters, but because they were on the same bill, I was fucked. Well, I can tell you what. If you give this movie a watch, it'll yeah. turn you into a Foo Fighters fan. So it's going to be like that too. It'll yeah, it'll at least get you to put in the first album again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I do. I do enjoy the first album, and that's another thing with these movies. I guess when I watch it, then I actually do go back and really listen to their work again, especially yeah. when I get to see the creation and understand what was going on in that time. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Um, this is, uh, I'm telling you, it's a very good documentary style movie. And then even uh, with the recording of Wasting Light and seeing, you know, Butch Vig come back and seeing, like, how they work. And then you see yeah. Chris Novoselic, who later plays yeah. on a track. Yeah, Chris yeah. Novoselic is in it because yeah. he played on, a, he played on like, the last I song known. or something. Yeah. Okay. I, I think he plays mandolin or recording. No, he mandolin. plays bass. He plays bass on I Should Have Known. Yeah, you're right. I do remember seeing that. Doesn't yeah. he do the accordion, too? I think he does play accordion, like, too. Isn't there, like, an intro or something on one of the songs? I believe that's like, I Should Have Known, also. I think he just, like, does that opening note or something. Yeah. But they don't show that. The only thing they do show is, um... The, the one thing they do show is him playing bass. Yeah. Which I think is crazy that it took that long for him to be on a Foo Fighters like a album. Of that. They probably wanted to avoid it for, like, the first ten years. For just, obvious just reasons. Was Pat Smear yeah. on the first album? Yes. So he's no. been with them. He yeah, wasn't. No, no, no. It's just Dave. The first album. So Pat was it, on the second Foo Fighters yep. album, and then Pat's been with them ever since. He was right? on the first tour. Okay. And then no, Pat Smear left after the like the first shows. Like I think he played one show on the Color and Shape tour. Yeah. And then he quit on the, the rooftop of, of the Radio City Music yeah, Hall Radio in New York. City. And he hasn't been with him since, right? No. Then he rejoined on the In Your, in Your Honor acoustic tour. Right. As an additional touring guitarist, and then, then on the he album came after, back. he came back as a full member in 2007. So okay. he was out of the Foo Fighters from basically 97, or yeah, 97 to like oh. Well, he came back on the tour for Echoes. He he didn't record on Echoes. That was all Chris Shiflett. He had some sort of involvement with In Your Honor, I know. But if we're getting super off topic. Next week's going to be a Foo Fighters week. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll check it out because again, I mean, I got, I, I like the idea. That's why I asked about Pat Smear because I'm a huge Germs fan. I really yeah, like yeah. the Germs, and then that, I, what, yeah, especially yeah, GI was awesome. I mean, Darby Crash, Donna Rio, all them. Um, but yeah, I'll check it out because again, I Foo Fighters are one of those bands. Like I know a lot of their work. Yeah, I see them all the time on videos, like popping up on Facebook and social media for little things that they do or what's going on with them because they are still very relevant today. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, like that's that's what I usually typically look for in these movies is like an opportunity to find like a newfound appreciation for an artist that's well known that I typically don't know a lot about. But yep. yeah, I'll check that out definitely. Come back to that. All right, guys. Well, once again, thank you for your continued support. We're gonna keep these podcasts coming as long as you guys are listening to them. Uh, be sure to tune in next Monday for another one. This is Rage Against the Mainstream signing off. I'm Bill. Connor. Steve. Have a good night, everyone. Thanks for listening.